This week, we go deep into Netflix Mindhunter with writer Jennifer Haley. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerling Biro. So, one of my favorite TV shows of the fall season is Netflix Mindhunter, that just ended an incredible first season. The drama is based on the true stories of the FBI group led by John E. Douglas, who redefined murder investigations thanks to psychology through interview techniques and information from interviews with serial killers such as John Wayne Gacy, Charles Manson, Richard Speck, and Ed Kemper played scarily well on Mindhunter by Cameron Britton. Douglas' work and book has inspired many Hollywood stories, like Silence of the Lambs, for example. On Mindhunter, we follow the FBI agents Holden Ford, played by Jonathan Groff, Bill Tench, played by Holt McCallany, and sociology scholar Dr. Wendy, played by Anna Torv, as they engage in their own research, meeting convicted serial killers, and studying their minds and motives. We should be using every resource we can, talking to the smartest people we find from the broadest possible spectrum. Are criminals born? Or are they formed? Psychopaths are convinced that there's nothing wrong with them, so these men are virtually impossible to study, yet you have found a way in near-perfect laboratory conditions. Hello, ladies. That's what makes this so exciting and potentially so far-reaching. I can't let these guys rub off on me. The way they view sex. And women. It is not our job to commiserate with these people. It is our job to electrocute them. We can't like everything we do. We're talking to serial killers. Serial killers. New terminology. I'm trying to warn you. Your attitude is going to bite you in the ass. So young to be ruining people's lives. What did you do? You're developing a pattern of behavior that will not sustain you here. Agent Ford, if you leave, I can't help you. There's no procedural rule book for how to talk to these people. If any of this is going to work, we need to talk to more subjects. More! You want truffles? You got to get in the dirt with the pigs. It was Charlize Theron who first gave executive producer and director David Fincher Douglas' book, Mindhunter. Then playwright and screenwriter Joe Penhall, whose credits include The Road, came aboard to write the show. He brought on my guest this week, playwright Jennifer Haley. It's not surprising that Mindhunter has relied on a lot of playwrights. The style is very verbal, and we get to take our time with the scenes, especially the interviews. Jennifer Haley is a playwright whose prize-winning work, such as Froggy and The Nether, has been produced in the U.S., off-Broadway, on London's West End, and here in Scandinavia. For television, she's written on Netflix Hemlock Grove and Mindhunter, for which she's also a co-producer. Miss Haley's play, The Nether, about the dark side of technology, sex, crime, and the internet, has been produced many times here in Sweden. I started by asking her how her work has been received in Scandinavia. Oh, it was really, it was very, it was very interesting seeing, like coming to Europe in general. And um, I feel like in Europe, obviously the direct, like the director is given a lot of leeway to kind of create her, his own vision for it. And so, for instance, in America, it had, it had always been done at this very like fast speed, um, very kind of fast and clipped and um, but when I came over here and it was also this way in Germany, it was like, I think the directors here and the, and even the theater audiences like to take their time. So it had this much more like 
dreamy. It was quite beautiful uh, what Teresa did, but it was very. It was. It was. It, it, it was had this wonderful dreamy, especially in the Hideaway, had this kind of like soft focus quality to it, and the um, kind of the the action between the lines and the silent action was really looked at and highlighted, and I thought it was quite quite lovely and it was um it was so fun to see it done in another country and in another language and of course I don't know Swedish but I know the play so I could figure out what was going on but it was also you know from line to line I didn't necessarily know what line they were on so it was really fun for me to just watch the actors and and figure out where they were in the emotional journey of the play just based on their their movements and how they were interacting with each other. Now that that play goes into some very dark places which you you've written about a lot sort of virtual reality even sort of pedophiles and impact of technology which Mindhunter does as well but in very very different eras. Do you see the similarities? Is this why you wanted to write on the show? No, I got the I got the job on Mindhunter because um the creator of Mindhunter the writer creator Joe Penhall uh, is based in London and he saw the nether at the Royal Court Theatre. And the Royal Court, that's also where um, Teresa first saw the play, and the Royal Court sort of opened opened the play up to Europe. But anyway, Joe saw it and and he talked to David Fincher, who's the obviously the director and producer on the show, um, and said, I think we have uh, a good candidate for one of the writers on the show. And I'm sure he was looking at the fact that in the nether you have these long interrogation scenes and interview scenes and that that's kind of the, the backbone of the material with Mindhunter. Um, but I think Mindhunter also gives itself over to playwrights in that, um, in that the scenes can be long. Um, I remember working on Hemlock Grove I was pretty much, I brought in a six page scene and the showrunner was like, this is great. This is, you know, this is just lovely. Um, but we really, you know, we need to keep it to two or three pages. Chop, which chop, it's TV. Two or three <laughs> screen time. Yes. Right. And then what was great on Mindhunter was, is that it was a different, it was a different sensibility. In fact, I was told, you know, if, you know, if there were time cuts in a scene, as we started looking at rewriting, it was like, let's take out those time cuts let's see this whole scene from beginning to end. And if it takes 15 minutes, it, it takes 15 minutes. I think the, yeah, I'm, I need to watch it again. I think the longest, the longest one in there is between 12 and 15 minutes. And that's kind of, that's not done much in American television. So that felt like a real luxury and it's kind of a perfect thing for playwrights because if there's anything we know how to do, it's how to like just keep people talking for a long time. Which is what's, I think, magnificent about the show and which made it such a different procedural, which I know when I started watching, it's like, wow, this is, I've seen 3 million procedure, but this is something else. And I think it's that we get to see the whole thing and really be in their heads, so to speak. But I want to ask you a little bit more in detail about your research process and how you broke down the writing and stuff. But I thought maybe for the listeners, tell me, John Douglas, Robert, Wrestler, I think is his name, and Dr. Anne Burgess. What did they pioneer? These are the real people. John Douglas, I think kind of on a, on a whim, um, started interviewing incarcerated serial killers because he felt like there was something uh, that we could learn from these people about this 
what felt at the time like a new sort of crime. You know, the show takes place, and, and, and this, these procedures were developed in the late 70s. And so we had seen kind of the rise of the serial killer in the 60s and 70s. And before that, there were definitely serial killers. I mean, working on the show, I found out a whole, a whole lot of stuff that I didn't even necessarily want to find out. But serial <laughs> killers have always been around. It's just that um, there was kind of they – were, they were on the rise in the 60s and 70s. You know, society was changing – um, women were a lot more mobile at that point, and women are the primary victims. Um, but it was kind of uh, baffling to law enforcement. I mean, for one thing, law enforcement, there was not good communication, even from one city to the next, from one state to the next. So that was a problem um, in terms of putting these things together. But the crimes themselves were quite mysterious to traditional law enforcement because there was no obvious motive. Um, law enforcement at that time usually looked for and we go through this in the show, looked for need or greed as being uh, as being the reason for a crime to be committed, which is why, you know, you look to the spouse, you look to the business partner, you look to, but these crimes were, they couldn't be solved that way. So John, so John and Robert, you know, they started working together fairly quickly, realized that if they could, if they could talk to these people who were con- committing these seemingly motiveless crimes, they could get into the psychology of the crime and then the crime scene itself um, could kind of reveal what sort of uh, what sort of psychology the 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 killer was operating under based on the crime presentation. And then Anne came in, and she um, she was a professor, and she um, had developed she developed methods for them to actually break down the data. So if you um, read. It's actually a fascinating read. If you read the book that they actually came out with, it comes out in the early 80s, and it's called, um, I believe it's called Sexual Patterns in Homicide. And forgive me if I'm rusty on some of these things, because my work on the show was, uh, I did that over a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, sexual Patterns in Homicide. But they, um, and they're only starting to get into this in the first season, because they interviewed, I think, between like 60 and 80 of these um murderers and then did a very data-based breakdown of what percentage of these, uh, mostly men, of course, what percentage of these men, um, had the, had the, came from broken homes. What was the economic standing of the families? Interestingly, in that category, you might imagine that these people came from more lower, um, lower income families, not necessarily. In fact, I think they mostly came from like middle income families. If I remember the the, fat, the data correctly, was there drinking in the home? Was the were they um, were they exposed to sexual behavior at a very early age? And um, so Anne came in and really put this very scientific. You know, the guys weren't just going in and conducting interviews. They were going in and collecting data so they could kind of um, and then they were able to start breaking down, you know, breaking these things down into categories such as this killer. You know, there's a set of these killers who have a higher IQ and who um, plan out their their murders. And then there's kind of and they started calling them organized. And then there's another set that's uh, lower IQ and their um, crimes are a lot more, they're more impulsive mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they, they don't necessarily cover up the crime scene. They might leave the body at the scene. 
as opposed to planning in advance, covering up the crime scene and moving the body. So based on the crime scene presentation, they could start working backwards to what kind of killer they were looking at, which could kind of narrow the um, narrow the focus of who they were looking for. And in fact, John Douglas started doing things, and, um, and this will, I'm, I'm imagining one of these things will come up in season two. He started um, figuring out ways to kind of get the killer to come forward. Um, so he would figure out what's, you know, what he was thinking, you know, he would think maybe this guy's a security guard. Let's have a concert. Let's put in the ad the paper looking for security guards and let's see if any of those guys turns out to be the killer. Or, you know, so he started figuring out these very like proactive ways based on, based bring on the them out, sort of. Right. Yes. To right. bring them forward. Right. Um, right. Because a lot of, uh, they did find that, uh, you know, there was a significant percentage of these killers who, who, you know, kind of would either go back and revisit the body or would check the newspapers, were very interested in the unfolding of the of the crime and the and the and the um, investigation itself. And you can see that with Ed Kemper, you find out when we meet him that he was actually buddies with all the policemen working on these cases. And he would go hang out in the bar with them and be like, so how's the case coming? Mm -hmm. And he just kind of, you know, it gave him, it was almost like repeating, getting to repeat for him the pleasure of the crime by hearing um, the policeman talk about it. So, you know, that's kind of the psychology of some of these killers, too. So, yes, the three of them, the three of them really um, created this whole kind of behavioral yeah the practice practice of behavioral profiling let's talk a little bit about your research process and how you worked with david fincher and and with the writers how, how tell me a little bit about was it a traditional writer's room or how, how did how did you work what was your research process no there was no writer's room joe wrote seven of the 10 episodes and then three of them um went out to freelance writers so i wrote episode i I came on the show and i wrote episode five and this was um this was i think in 2015 and we were not sure when the when the series would actually air because david had a couple of other projects lined up um and then those projects uh for budgeting reasons suddenly fell through a couple of them uh one after the other and suddenly mindhunter came came up for production. And at that point, all I had done was written, um, a free, this freelance episode. And I had worked with Joe via Skype. Um, and then when the show came up to production, uh, it came up very quickly and they needed rewrites done on several of the episodes as they were filming. So then I went to Pittsburgh and worked and there was kind of a room there with David and a producer and me. Um, and, um, that was the closest to a room we got. It was a very untraditional writing process. Did you do a lot of research? Because, I mean, I, of course, after seeing the amazing, amazing work of Cameron Britton as Ed Kemper, uh-huh. you were mentioning that scene, that long scene, which I'm sure is the one you're talking about, 15-minute scene. Did you guys watch these real conversations that are actually out there? With the serial killer? Joe developed this with David for about three years and did a ton of research. Um, Joe watched those videos. Those videos were, were quite handy for us in terms of, and for Cameron. I believe he watched the videos. And then, if I remember the story correctly, he watched those videos and submitted an audition tape. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Had already, yeah, had already kind of gotten those um 
what's lovely for a writer is that Kemper speaks in such a, such a specific cadence Mm -hmm. that, um, it's such a gift because, you know, one of the challenges on this show was to find the different voices of the killers and Kemper was really the only one that there were videos of, you know, some of them, there's articles, some of them there's, but some of them, there's not much information on them. So to, to find out, to find those different voices. So it was so great with Kemper to have a voice that was already there. And Joe really captured that in those opening episodes. And then I did some work on the final episode in that Kemper, in that Kemper scene. And it was, um, he was such an easy character to write for because the voice was so established. Well, cops like me because they can talk to me more than they can talk to their own wives, some of them. Did the cops like you? Like I said, a friendly nuisance. I got in the way. I watch all the cop shows on TV. Do you know uh, Joseph Wambaugh? Police story, you ever watched that? Huge fan. Oh. I got a lot of my insights right there. Really? Joseph Wambaugh, police story. Got some tremendous insights into not just the gimmicks, the actual things, the tidbits that you would pick up from their procedures, but the mechanics behind that, the logic behind it, was I would not allow myself to walk into even a potential trap. I would not allow myself to walk into a trap because I knew exactly how their minds work from watching Wumba. What kind of trap are you talking about? And one of those was talking about those crimes too much to people, initiating conversations about that. The classic is talking too much about the crimes over interest. You have to remain casual. What was the most difficult character to write for or, or to, for you? I think, let's see, who was the most difficult character? That's interesting. The, the, two, the two men, Holden and, and Tench, um, Hold, Holden Ford and um, Bill Tench, were, um, they were very much in relief. They were very much emerging. Wendy, who, play, who plays the Ann Burgess character, she was, she was something that we were still kind of like, you know, finding her character. And I think we still are. Um, and then finding the relationship between Holden and Debbie and what was the, what was going on in that relationship. That was definitely kind of an exploration as well. And, uh, with Bill and Nancy, what was going on in that marriage? That was kind of, I feel like those were like the two guy characters were very kind of fully formed as we started moving into production. It was the female characters who we were working with, you know, and figuring out their relationships to the male characters. How does that work? Do you guys sit and talk about that? I like just, just talk and talk and talk. Yes. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, interestingly that whole, there's a sequence in, in episode seven, I believe where Bill and Nancy are going back and forth about the sun and then they go home and the babysitters found the, uh, The the, crime scene photograph. That whole sequence actually came about. Uh, we were already in Pittsburgh and um, Holt McCallany, who plays Bill Tench, he was like, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be interesting if Bill's kid found one of the crime scene photos? And we we're like, oh, that's a great idea. And just in conversations, we built out that whole, that whole sequence. Okay. Uh, yeah. And that's what's, that's what I find most exciting about writing for television is even with my plays, I feel I'm very collaborative. I really work best when I'm working with directors and actors, you know, in terms of advancing these scripts. I mean, I still do this where I'm thinking like, I'm right about the way this story should go. And -and so-and-so's 
wrong and you know and then I'll get to a point where we're discussing it and I'll realize oh no actually what they're trying to do is much better and much more interesting <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're all like, like that in our different ways you always assume you have the answers and then you start listening to other people and you realize no that uh, that actually no we should do that that's right, really right. good but if I'm hearing you correctly you actually were sort of still working on the script quite a lot then at the same time as you were filming if that scene came up Yes. So the actors were like waiting yes, for you. Yes, and partly that was because the project came up so suddenly. It was not supposed to get shot until these other projects fell away. So there was a there was a very quick kind of turnaround. And so the scripts needed to be worked on while they're filming. Now, that's pretty typical. Like Hemlock Grove, we wrote, I think we had about two scripts written, the first two of a 10-episode season when that started filming. And it was filming in Toronto, and our room was based in L.A., so some of the writers would go to Toronto and our, our room got broken up, but we had, we had broken the whole season, but actually writing the episodes that was going on during filming. That is typical. Now there are with cable television, all the models are getting changed. And I know that, I know that like David and that production team, no one was excited about writing while filming, but it was kind of what happened because the show came up uh, for production. Right, right. So I'm just thinking this is such a psychological challenge for the actors um, to, as, as it is since it's such a psychological story. They're doing these interviews and just sort of growing all the time and, and, and that, it, that it must be really hard to not have the next script, the next script and just <laughs> – but it might not be. I'm not an actor, so I don't know. <laughs> It was, you know, the the actors had to because there were some there were some days that we were changing scenes on the day of, and that was not that was we did not do that often, and that was not necessarily desirable. But on the other hand, and I know that I know that several shows, and I think even with the second season of Mindhunter, which I was not on because I'm I'm continuing to work on some of my own projects, but I think they wanted they wanted to have all those scripts ready to go before they started filming because it is an extra. It's, you know, it's just an extra challenge to be filming and writing. Um, on the other hand, like I said, that in terms of traditional television, that is kind of the way it goes. And what's interesting about that is in TV in general, I have found is that it just it it kind of pushes you. It pushes you to get it done. And there's an improvisational quality to that and thinking on your feet that can really inform the show if you're, you know, if you roll with it and you don't, you don't freeze up. Right, right. Tell me a little bit about Fincher and his process. So what did he sort of tell you that he wanted, so to speak? I mean, he's done a few of these type of um, stories before. I mean, this is his area. <laughs> Yes, yeah. yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I hadn't seen Zodiac, and I prepped again by watching, you know, I prepped by watching that again when I was first working on uh, on my episode. Um, he's fascinating. He's brilliant. He's thinking, I feel like he's someone, he thinks in, in ways that most of us don't think. He's just tapped into a sort of very holistic understanding or really is grasping for a holistic understanding of, the the point in time at which this happened the you know we had to be very careful about not knowing as much about psychology as we do now right. because this was the 70s so he's a real stickler for period details and not just in what costumes people are wearing but literally the way people were thinking the way people were talking um 
and the way he, I mean, David never gives a note. He'll, he'll never say, you know, do this with this character or let's take this scene, this direction. What it is, is he'll start a conversation um, or a monologue rather, and it will kind of spiral around and around and around and it can go for several minutes and the note is in that spiral but you really have to kind of absorb the whole thing and then distill the note for the direction of that character so the, the direction note is of more of a discussion than it is an actual go do this yes much more of a discussion yes i mean when you're down to when you're down to the nitty gritty of you know sometimes we would send scenes back and forth and he would be like cut this change this oh of course so that you know but um but a lot of it in terms of in terms of the kind of gentle reshaping that went went on during production and, and kind of shaping it to the end of the series like i really had to respond to these larger conversations and then figure out how to make that specific in terms of what I was trying to do with a certain scene. Um, and it was very, and at first it was, you know, I was pretty like terrified, <laughs> but once I got used to it, once again, once I got used to it and you kind of settle into it and don't freeze up, then I feel like I learned so much from him and working on the show. Um, I learned so much as a writer. My writer really took a big, and, and the other thing, too, is he's just a stickler for specificity. Like, oh, he yeah. cannot stand any generalization anywhere um, in, uh, you know, even the line. You can't have a line where someone says, he's crazy. Like, David will not accept the word crazy because it's too general of a term. Everything has to be super specific. And then every once in a while, he'll throw out these real gems. Like, if, like at some point he said, you know, Holden's... Holden's greatest fear is doubt. What Holden needs more than anything else is, is the answers, reassurance that he has the answers. And I thought that was a very, you know, I thought he just kind of, because you can talk around characters for a long time, but even figuring out what's their greatest fear, what's their greatest, you know, he kind of like just dropped right in that. And I, and it made total sense. You think you would figure that out early <laughs> in the game? Not necessarily. Now you can figure that out as you're going along. Oh, that's what the nut of this character is. And once he said that, I was just like, wow, that is, that is golden. And that feels really true to this character. Right, right. Um, and then that kind of shows up in that final scene with Kemper. Kemper asks him, why are you here? And Holden has to say, I don't know. And that's the one thing he has not wanted to say the entire season is I don't know. He's what he wants to know. And he's done this whole thing with serial killers and he's no closer to some greater truth. Right, right. Um, now, I'm certainly not the first viewer or, or, or critic um, to see and be interested in how you guys have um, tapped into toxic masculinity on this show, um, that you just present that with such eerie clarity that's like from the first 15 minutes until the very end. Was this something you guys talked about or did it become clearer and clearer that you were doing this while you were making the show? No, we did not talk about toxic masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't? <laughs> Don't you always talk about toxic masculinity? <laughs> no, but I mean, was this like a some sort of theme about that these men were figuring stuff about themselves? <laughs> Yes, it was very clear from the book. It was almost like 
that was embedded in like all of the many of the conversations were around, you know, the the um, the agents discovering how much of these crimes were associated with the killers having a very poor relationship with their mother, with the killer, with there being this sexual aspect to it and a need to dominate uh, a need to dominate women and assert power over women, especially uh, often these killers were um, inadequate with women, um, sexually inadequate with women. So that, that is kind of, you know, really embedded in, in the stories, um, on their own. And all of that I think would have come out without us even pointing arrows at it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what's great about the character of Wendy is that she comes in and she, you know, she makes, she really brings this to the surface and she talks about like, why, you know, what is this need to mutilate a woman, a woman's genitals? Like what's behind that? And is there a rape committed? Is there rape committed before the victim is killed? Uh, how is that different from a rape committed after the victim is killed? And what does that show about uh, his relationship to women? I mean, of course, with the understanding that his, the most of these men's real world relationships with women are, are pretty poor. Right. Um, Although someone like uh, Brutus was able, you know, he had a he had a wife and two kids. You start getting into their relationship, and you realize that it wasn't a very good relationship. And right. she kind of was afraid of him, and kind of you know did did what he said to do. Um, but there was an interesting there was an interesting moment with the with the Brutus with the Brutus scene when the agents take in, you know, the shoe to try to get him talking. And Brutus is an interest, really interesting killer because he was a, um, he was a cross dresser. Uh, he loved women's shoes. He had hundreds of women's shoes. Um, some of them, you know, they were in large size, they were his size, but some of them were just women's shoes. We really had a, we really had a time trying to untangle like what shoe should they bring in for him? Should they bring him in a shoe that's just a regular women's shoe should they bring in a shoe that's extra large so he could potentially wear it right uh, brand new they're the biggest size they had you should have brought me a pair of nancy's fuck you fuck you so when did it start your interest in women's shoes. It didn't start. It was always there. There must have been a moment during puberty when it became sexual. Got my first pair of heels at five. Five? Five years old? Stilettos. Found them in the junkyard, brought them home. Why? Never seen anything like them before, except in pictures. Didn't your mom wear heels? Never. I had to start looking around on the internet uh, um, looking around on the internet for that um, pedophilia. Oh, I forget the term, term of it. It's not pedophilia. It's pedophilia. I don't know. Whatever that. A sexual fetish attraction to for, right. Yeah, like shoe fetish. And I got you know. I started finding some crazy stuff. It was like, yeah, it's very odd. I remember this one account on some message board. I think it was on 4chan. You know, if you ever want a rabbit hole to go down, down and look up fetish on 4chan you know some guy talking about how his teenage you know he's, he's married he's got this teenage daughter and her friends came come over and they all put their shoes by the door and he waits for them all to go to bed and at 3 a.m he sneaks down 
and and um, fondles one of the friend's shoes and has an orgasm, and that was that's his thrill. And it's like, how do you how do you even parse that? No, no, you know. But I found all kinds of crazy stuff and was like, here you go. Here what here's what goes on with foot fetish. And, right, right. Um, <laughs> and we were really just trying to figure out like what the nature, what, what this shoe was actually, what the agents were trying to do with the shoe, what the effect of, uh, what the effect on, on Brutus of the shoe would be. Um, but then came the conversation, then came the scene with, um, Wendy where she listens to the tape of what they've done. And a lot of that scene in terms of her point of view was my contribution because of all the characters she's tapped into, I think what we, you know, our, what we, Think of our, our current standards of how you approach um, of how you approach you know dressing like the other gender and and these kind of fetishes and she has much more like holistic look of it and whereas Bill you know Bill and Holden are using these very blunt tools of just kind of like poking at this guy just to get him to talk and bugging him about his his cross dressing and she's like this is not scientific this is not appropriate. Um, his cross-dressing actually has nothing to do with the fact that he's also a homicidal maniac. Let's Mm -hmm. not conflate two of these things. Um, and she's upset about the way they've gone about this interview and the guys are like, what's your problem? (laughs) Like they don't get it. The, the, the point of view that she's coming from. So that was, that was an interesting, there was even one of the producers who was contributing, even he didn't quite understand her point of view. He, he was like, she just seems irrational. <laughs> I was like, I put that, I think I put that in Bill's mouth. I was like, you're being irrational. And it made for this really, I think, fun scene that gets commented on now since people have been talking about Mindhunter. But that, that was, yeah, that was, that, and that's, that's a very clear and, and, and pointed way in which we were trying to apply what we know now about psychology and, and, and show Wendy is this, you know, she's already there and her character in the play, she's a lesbian and she's a professor. So she's on to these things, you know, decades before. Cross-dressing is not an antecedent to homicidal behavior. I didn't say that. For most people, it's a harmless form of expression. Most people? Those who do it. But it's usually sexual, right? And we know sex drives our subjects. It's sometimes sexual. Transvestism has been practiced in every era, in every human culture. If you want to teach a class, go back to Boston. You weren't speaking his language. You were persecuting him about something that challenges your masculinity. But I think it's also Holden's sort of journey that we see that it's so that it's kind of shocking for us, the viewer, to see him so easily bring out this side of him when he's doing the interviews. And it's almost like he's enjoying this. (laughs) Um, I think that's also, you showed that very well, that this was something that he all of a sudden didn't even realize that he actually was part of him. Am I making sense? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's that's what's kind of wonderful about his character. And Jonathan Groff does such a good job of it because Jonathan, Jonathan is so fresh faced and never and always plays him as like this straight arrow. And yet the things coming out of his mouth are appalling. Mm-hmm. Um, so to see, to see Holden and one of, one of the things David completely wanted to avoid was the idea that, Oh, these, you know, working with monsters brings out the monster in you or that these agents were in any way like these homicidal killers because he, he, you know, he thinks that's ridiculous. Like there is a huge difference between a normal person and a person who's going to go 
um, you know, butcher a bunch of people. Um, so, but Holden getting caught up in, in terms of like the techniques and in terms of, because a lot of the, the very smart serial killers are crafty. Like they start to understand the language of psychology and use it to deal with whoever is interviewing them or working with them or to get what they want. So for Holden to then, you know, go one step further and also start using the psychology to get in there and break them down. Yes. uh, I think that, and that, that arc of his was kind of built in there from the beginning. Um, And I think was very clever and very well executed by Jonathan. You were mentioning at the start of, of the interview that you learned a lot of things about serial killers, of course, maybe even more than, than you wanted to. And this is a maybe a horrible question, but, but what have you learned? For example, when, when something like the Las Vegas shooter happens or, or now when, when Charles Manson just died or something, do, do you, has this brought you any sort of realization? Do you think about what you've learned and say, yes, well, do you understand, not understand is the wrong word, but can you sort of put together why these things happen? Actually, it's the, um, I mean, Las Vegas was a spree killer like Charles Whitman. And, um, that's kind of in a, in a different category than a serial killer. Um, I was more focused on, and I did not have a native interest in serial killers before I began working on this show. Working on true crime was really interesting to me. And then every once in a while, I'd, you know, completely feel sick because, you know, I was able to put it at a distance while I was working on it. But then every once in a while it would overwhelm me. Um, but, you know, the case that's that's come up recently that made me go, oh, yep, that's I recognize that is the um, it's actually the Scandinavian inventor who oh, murdered oh, right. the, Kim. Oh, yeah. the Kim Walt. Yeah, that's horrible. Walt, journalist. Uh, when that story coming uh, started coming out, I was like, oh, my God, this is exactly and he totally fits the profile. And and I'm sure I, I think they're tr- they're looking at DNA stuff and trying to figure out if he's connected to other murders. And he very possibly is because these 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 people, uh, once the switch turns, they are they are predators and they don't have they don't have uh, what we consider normal feelings of remorse and um if you, if, you know, if you followed his story, all of the excuses he was giving and the, um, you know, these people feel a great amount of self-importance and they, they don't have remorse and they'll do anything to uh, get people over to their, their side or convince other people that they're the crazy ones. Very interesting. That case just fit. I think exactly. his name is, is Madsen, uh, Madsen. I think. What is the profile you see? The profile is, well, part of it, you know, on his computer, they found, they found videos of, of women being, um, I think raped and mutilated and all kinds of awful things. Um, so the fact that he was already into this stuff, that's, that's pretty common. And then the remorselessness that he exhibited afterwards and the attempts to wriggle out of suspicion, the, you know, whatever he had to say that might work. You know, he was saying, he was saying that she slipped and hit her head and then they found her head and she didn't have a, you know, there was no wound on it from, from slipping. So he immediately changed his story. That all fits within the, within the, the nature of these serial killers. And he's, he's clearly like 
he's clearly a smart man with a high IQ. And it's also surprising to me how many of these serial killers do have high IQs. So you, you think you, you think there may be a possibility that they will find other victims? Yes, I think there's a strong possibility that he's done this before. And what I don't understand, I, I, what I'm not quite sure of is what his, um, you would think he'd be smart enough to have a better plan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he built a U-boat, right? Or <laughs> yeah, well, it was on the submarine that he built. Yeah. You'd think he's going to, if his intention, if he thought he was going to, if he knew he was going to murder her going out, he, maybe he had this grand plan to sink the submarine. I think he'd spoken to someone about how, you know, they would never find a body in this bay. I think he was not quite, he, it seemed to me like he thought he had this whole thing worked out, but he was not, he was not aware of how, of how expert they would be at finding her body. So I think he underestimated. Um, but the other thing about these serial killers, the smart ones is they really do feel like they're the smartest person on the planet. What I think is kind of interesting is that, so Back in the late 70s, you know, John and Robert and Anne developed this whole behavioral criminal profiling. Well, then Hollywood got a hold of it and it completely influenced. I mean, that is the seed of everything we see on these on these television procedurals. But now I think what's interesting is that if you're a potential criminal, you can watch this stuff and it can give you ideas for how to. Oh, okay, I need to make sure, you know, they can use UV light to find blood splatter. So how do I. You know, if you're very clever, I think you can actually now watch these things and figure out how to, um, how to use it for how, how to get around it. Wow, that's so funny. I think I think what the other thing is, I think we have I think there are plenty of serial killers out there and they've become very clever. And we do not even know um, how many murders or disappearances are being committed by a dedicated predator right, right. that because they've become so clever. um we're not able to put those things together, you know, in the sixties and seventies, once they, you know, they could start piecing things together. And now who knows? Many of the people that you are, the serial killers that, uh, that are on the show are actually still alive in prison, correct? Yes. They're still alive and in prison. Do you know if they have any reaction to the show? <laughs> I would, I've wondered that. I've wondered that if, if Ed Kemper, uh, is a allowed to see the show and b what his, um, opinion would be. <laughs> I don't <laughs> Do you know. have an idea. Would he, would he be like, Oh With yes. that ego. He loves it. <laughs> they got this wrong about me. Right, right. <laughs> I, I just have one, one sort of last area I'd like to ask you about because it's of course, particular interest of me. And that's sort of, for me, and, and that's interview technique, because um, as a journalist, I find that particularly interesting. What did you sort of learn about the art of interviewing since that's such a big part of this show? I mean, that's basically what they're doing from beginning to end. Was there something interesting you learned about that? You know, it was all, it was, what was interesting is being a writer of character, what the agents are always trying to do is to find the lever that will get the person they're interviewing to actually talk and to actually give them information, insight that's helpful to them. So, um, I mean, it was one of the great challenges is the writer is to, is to find what that, what that lever is, you know, what that push button is. And it was different for every character, but to figure that out, what the appropriate lever would be for that character was always part of the investigation. Both for you as a writer and for the characters on the show. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. It was kind of like, what is that thing? For instance, with Brutos, what Holden realized is that if he, Brutus wasn't going to confess. He wasn't going to indicate, he was, he still had this idea that he could get out on parole. And so he wasn't going to say anything that was going to indicate that he'd actually committed any of these crimes. But when Holden was able to, to turn it into, oh, well, if it was this other guy who did it, because Brutus kept insisting it must have been someone else, um, he'd been wrongfully jailed. And Holden was like, oh, if it was this other guy who did it, what do you think was going through his mind? And then once he opened up the context of speaking about it in third person, then Brutus was happy to hold forth. Because uh, a lot of these killers do have these like grandiose illusions. Like they want to talk about, they want to talk about their oeuvre. They want to talk about, once again, they don't have a natural emotional reaction to this stuff. They um, are, are, are kind, they're, they get turned on, I think, both sexually and intellectually by what they have done. And, and especially the smart ones are happy to talk about it. And for that one in particular, it was like Holden realizing he just needed to put it in a third person context and then Brutus open up. Um, I've heard a rumor that season two will, there'll be um, about, or some things about Charles Manson. Do you know if that's true? I'm not sure. I think Manson may come up in season two. What is, what is your take on Charles Manson now that he just died? I mean, there's so many spectacular headlines about him the past few weeks that, that are like, that he was demonic, that he was this, that he was that. What, what do you think? What was it? You know, what was interesting about these serial killers is that they, it's kind of like a question of, do these people really believe their own bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> or do they, do, they, do they start a story and then just get into it and refuse to admit that they're wrong or they're lying? And so it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And they just like you know, you know, kind of like Trump, they just lean in, you know, because they're not going to back off of it. I have no idea whether Manson uh, believed all this stuff or whether he created an entire world of belief and then just, you know, to kind of as a way to make himself a godlike figure in a way. And then, you know, was clever enough to just continue, continue perpetuating this. Sometimes I think that we give him too much credit, though, that it's sort of pop culture that made him that big, that he was just sort of a con man in a, in a weird time, and then all of a sudden it became a horrible, he was a horrible, twisted con man, and then pop culture made him huge because of where he did it and who he killed, and, and, and I don't know. I mean, that, I may not be right, but there's something. He's become so grandiose. Yes. Yes. Did he embrace that and make that part of, it's like, oh, you want to make a mythology out of what I've done? Okay, I'll do that. Let's do that. This was such a pleasure to talk to you. What What are your new projects coming up? Or what can you tell us? Maybe it's a secret. No, no secrets. I'm, um, I'm working on a, I'm work, I just finished uh, doing another redraft of a play that I'd started a few years ago. It's called Sustainable Living and it's, it's uh, my living room play. But it has a lot to do with architecture and climate change and, and feels like more it feels more uh, more now now than it did when I started on it like five years ago. So um, and then I'm working on a screenplay for a previous play of mine. Um, the play was about suburban teenagers getting addicted to an online horror video game. So I'm turning that into a screenplay dealing with augmented reality. And then I've also been working for a while um 
on an idea for turning the nether into a television show, which would, which would deal with, um, you know, thought crime and virtual reality. It's so interesting with you, Jennifer, because you seem to always have been a little bit before your time with your writing. You've always been like, you've sort of seen what's going to happen with the dark net of the internet and, and now with sort of climate change. So, so I, I'm really looking forward to reading and, and seeing your new stuff. And thank you so much for taking your time on Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. It's I real. I really, I loved Mindhunter from the first time Joe contacted me about it. I thought this is amazing. And I had a great time on it and I learned so much and, and, and it's really, that experience has really continued to fuel my other projects too. But yes, I, I do. Yeah, I think a lot about systems and I think a lot about the future and, 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 and I always, and to me, it's kind of a fun proposition. I always take it to its darkest possibility. Yeah. <laughs> well, th- thank you so much uh, um, for this. This was great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much to Jennifer Haley and you can catch Mindhunter on Netflix now. And thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at PodPopCulture. And if you have a moment, please take some time to rate us on iTunes or SoundCloud, for example. That really helps us out a lot. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Boy, and produced by Renee Vikander and myself. I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Thank you so much for listening. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.